All right. Good morning. Good to see you today. Uh, Welcome to Cedar Mill. If you are new around here, my name is Dave. I am one of the pastors here. It is great to have you. Uh, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward and receive our morning offering. As they do, I want to welcome any of you who are new with us today. We want you to feel welcome and invited here. We want this to be a a safe space for you. We'd love to connect with you. And so if you're at a place where you're ready to be connected with, um, and I know that maybe isn't all of you who are new, but if you've been here and you would like to reach out, get some information, have a conversation, talk about what it looks like to be a part of Cedar Mill, there's a card in the pew rack in front of you. It's called the I'm Here card. You fill that out, we get your info, we can talk to you and connect with you and figure out what... Next steps are best for you. You can turn those cards in at the Welcome Center on your way out. And one other thing about those cards, there's a place on there for some prayer requests. And so for any and all of us, if you have prayer needs, if you have prayer concerns, if you just like for an army of people to be praying for you throughout the week, um, fill that in. Again, drop it at the Welcome Center. We would love to pray for you. All right. This summer, we have been in this series called Psalms, the Language of Faith, and we're continuing in that this morning. But we ju- before we jump into our psalm for today, I want to make a correction to something I shared a few weeks ago when we talked about fear. Remember, we had a, a, a conversation in the Psalms about fear. Well, and looking at Psalm 46, I said mistakenly that it was written by Hezekiah. That was a, a misspeak by me. It was actually written by the sons of Korah. They're like a, an ancient Near Eastern worship band. And um, it was written about Hezekiah. They wrote it kind of from the perspective of Hezekiah during the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, and I made a technical mistake on that, so I wanted to um, correct it. Someone from the congregation who was listening carefully, graciously... Um, that never happened to you, Carl, did it? They graciously corrected me. They, did, they, did they correct you? No, absolutely not. No. Yeah. I knew it. I knew that's how that would go. Thanks for having my back on that. Remember, you're supposed to say yes. This happened to me all the time. Uh, no, but we wanted to correct it just because the Bible is something we take seriously around here and um, all of us are open to correction. So um, not written by Hezekiah, written about him. Um, today we're diving into Psalm 147, also not written by Hezekiah. But I picked the psalm that we're going through today because for the last few weeks I have been feeling led to talk and spend some time talking about worship. And Psalm 47 teaches us some things about worship. You'll read, you'll notice that as we read through it, that time and time again, it, it calls us to praise and to sing and to extol the Lord, to, to acclaim Him, to celebrate His power and mercy and strength and grace. And so, I'm going to invite Patricia Langford up to read from the Word of God for us this morning. And then we're going to explore some questions about worship. And here are our questions today. What is worship? Why is worship important? Where does worship begin? And how is worship done? The what, why, where, and how of worship from Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. 
Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Extol the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Well, right away, as we dive into this psalm, we notice that it it begins and ends with the same phrase. It's a command, and it's offered as a command. It's also offered with emphasis. It's written in Hebrew to have emphasis. In English, it's three words. Praise the Lord. But in Hebrew, those three words are actually just one word. Hebrew is the the language the Old Testament is written in. And this one word, translated praise the Lord, is the word hallelujah. And hallelujah is a remarkable word, friends. I spent some time on it this week, and I was tempted to preach this entire message on, on just this word, hallelujah. It's actually a word that's made up of two Hebrew words, two Hebrew words that are sort of mashed together. And the first of those words is the word halal, halal. And the word halal simply means to boast, it means to, to glory in something, to be proud of something, to take your boast in it. And that's the first word, halal. The second word is Yahweh. Hallelujah. Halal Yahweh. Put your boast in Yahweh. And Yahweh is one of the, the many names for God in the scriptures, um, but it's the personal name for God. You see, the the Hebrews had all sorts of ways of referring to God. There was a generic word for God. It's the word Elohim. And Elohim means the great omnipotent God. It's a little more vague. It's a little bit more obscure. right? It's like our word God in the English language. It is not specific. But the personal word for God, the he wants you to know him by name word for God, is this word right here. Yahweh. So get this. The opening and closing command of this psalm, the thing that frames everything else the psalmist tells us here, is this statement. Put your boast in the fact that you are on a first name basis with the Lord of heaven and earth. 
I'll say that again. Put your boast, your ultimate boast, in the fact that you are on a first-name basis with the Lord of heaven and earth. And friends, if you are looking for a simple definition of worship, there it is. Worship is making your highest and ultimate boast knowing God. The thing you're most proud of, the thing that gives you most value and direction in life is this, the God of the universe, that I know him and that he knows me. See, that's worship. A life lived from that is worship. Words declaring that truth are words of worship. Songs sung that boast in God and who he is, that's worship. And friends, the reason the psalmist starts and ends with this command, this very intense directive to praise the Lord, to hallelujah, is this. He knows that our hearts have divided loyalties. He knows that our worship has and will be again compromised. Friends, do you know what this is? A little visual aid here. You know what this is? Do you not know what this is? I'm concerned right now. Is it too small, Kevin? Are you having trouble? It's a trophy. This is a trophy. This is actually a trophy that I won this week in the finals of the staff ping pong tournament where I defeated a one Pastor Gabby Viesca quite handily, I might add, to claim the title of staff ping pong champion. Yes, that's right. You did not know that you were hearing this sermon from a champion. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and after I had won... I had this trophy sitting outside of my office all week. I was continually boasting in my victory, boasting in the fact that I have dominated all other staff members at ping pong. It's a high, high honor. It's a very important thing. Now, why do I share all that with you? Because I'm pretty proud of myself, really. Um, no, not really. Not, not that. The competition wasn't that hard. So, um, No, I, I, I share all of this with you. It's kind of a silly example of something that I would boast in. I have other things that I boast in that are a little more serious. But I share all this as an example to say, we all have trophies, don't we? Uh, some of us literal trophies from when we were kids. But here's the truth, whether you have plastic, shiny trophies or not, we all have things that we boast in. We all have things we're proud of, things we enjoy talking about, things we like to share about ourselves with others, things we enjoy thinking about ourselves and reflecting on about ourselves, things that we actually may not share or say, but that we hope others will notice or see or share about us. You see, here's the difference. Boasting doesn't have to be bragging. We talk about boasting, we're not talking about bragging. It doesn't always have to be explicit. Boasting doesn't always have to be on display for others. Boasting can actually happen in one's mind. It can happen deep inside your heart. In fact, I believe the most dangerous boasting is the boasting that's hidden way down deep in your soul. Just this past week, I was with a friend and we were talking about life and struggles and some hardship. And um, 
my friend was asking me for some thoughts and some feedback and as a way of just encouraging him, I said, you know, one thing about you that's just, I appreciate so much is you are really good at asking for feedback and receiving challenge and critique. You're just so good at just receiving that from people. That's something I really appreciate about you. And my friend, he stopped and he said, yeah, but you know, it's something that I'm actually a little too proud of too. You see, it was a moment where he was realizing that deep in his soul, he was prone to boasting about this quality that was actually really good, but that it had kind of taken a, a place of pride way down in his life. And even though he wouldn't, he wouldn't walk around and say, like, I'm really good at this, deep in his soul, that's how he felt. Deep down inside, he was boasting about it. And the scriptures say, be real careful about what you're boasting about deep in your soul. This is why Psalm 103 says this, Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Boast in the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Because boasting, friends, worship is not only about what's coming out of your mouth. It's not just about what you are posting or boasting on Instagram. It's about what's happening in your heart. You see, one of the first questions this psalm, this command, praise the Lord, hallelujah, should force us to ask is this. What does your heart brag about? What do you take the most pride in deep down in your soul? One author I read this week said, We must become aware of what our souls are clinging to, dreaming about, reveling in, relying on. Whether credentials, romantic love, money, success, intelligence, popularity, kids, looks, whatever we are most boastful of will be most in competition with God for our worship. I'll say that again. Whatever we are most boastful of will be most in competition with God for our worship. So the question as we begin this morning is, what are you really proud of? What is your heart tempted to boast about, either through your mouth, on your lips, or even just in the recesses of your brain? What is worship? Worship, hallelujah, is making my highest and ultimate boast knowing God. The thing I'm more proud of than anything else in my life is that I know God and that He knows me. He is the boast above all other boasts in my life. That's worship. A life lived from that place is worship. Words spoken from that place is is worship. All right, question two. Why is worship important? Check this out. The psalmist tells us right away in verse one, in the second half of verse one, he answers this question. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. Underline that word fitting because it's a fascinating word. It's a, it's a word that doesn't quite have an appropriate English translation. The, the technical definition um, for that word fitting in Hebrew, it actually means beautiful. You think beautiful? How do you get the word fitting from beautiful? And the, here's the idea behind it. Every soul is looking for something fittingly beautiful to boast in. See, that's what the scriptures say. This this world we live in, friends, is made up of spiritually thirsty people. Spiritually 
searching souls. Every single soul on planet earth is looking for something beautiful to boast in, is searching for something beautiful to worship, to give itself to. One scholar I read this week said, deep down in every single person's heart, in our souls, we feel our lives are not worth living, that we do not have value or significance unless, unless we're connected to something of beauty. Unless we're connected to something of value and significance. And if you wonder if that's true, think about how people clamor to be close to celebrities. Why in the world are people so crazy about celebrities? Right? Have you ever been with a celebrity? Have you ever seen a celebrity? Have you ever been someplace where a celebrity has been spotted and then, and then you realize what's happening in your own heart? Oh my gosh, it's fill in the blank, right? Tom Cruise or Dana Carvey or Will Ferrell or whoever it is, right? Oh my gosh, no, 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 what do you do? And my wife is the worst at this. Um, <laughs> We lived in Southern California. We'd spot them sometimes. And she ran into, this was in my notes, so be careful here, with a wife in the front row. She ran into Billy Crystal at the park in Ojai one day. And she and her sister put their sunglasses on so they could stare at him the whole time and not, and he wouldn't know that they were looking, right? Um, and she came home all excited. But, but we all do this. We see someone famous, a sports star or a movie star or something, and we're just like, oh, I used to hang out. My cousin played for the New York Yankees, and we would hang out. And first of all, I'll just confess that my soul, when we hung out, felt, I felt pretty important. I felt like I had more value. I'm hanging out with the first baseman of the New York Yankees. And then I'd watch other people approach him and how they responded. Friends, we are souls clamoring to be connected with something of value and beauty because we know it will give us value and beauty. This is why, this is why there is such a market for high-end cars. I mean, think about this for a minute. Why would someone spend more than $50,000 for an automobile when you can buy a really good one that can get you anywhere for twenty grand? I know this. I just bought a car. You don't have to spend that much, but people spend lavish amounts of money on cars. Why? Because their souls are longing to be connected with something of worth so that they feel like they have value. This is why people post the things they do on social media. You know? People don't post lame stuff on social media. They post stuff that that says, look at, I'm connected to this awesome thing. Look at this beautiful place where I've been. Look at this amazing breakfast I just had on the east side. Somehow, I feel like I have more value because I had this really amazing breakfast and I'm going to share it with the world. And no one cares what you ate for breakfast. breakfast, But in some strange way, it makes you feel... Like you're worth more. Your soul is craving for that stuff. And social media just just feeds it. And here's the tricky part. Here's the tricky part. Most things that will compete with God in your life are not evil things. They are good things that have been given more worth to shape you than they should have. They're good things that have been given more worth to shape you than they should have. We've talked about this before, but it's so important we'll review. The word worship actually comes from the old English phrase, worth shape. To be shaped by the worth of something. And the psalmist here in Psalm 147 is saying, 
is asking, why in the world would you let your worth be shaped by something small or insignificant, by something tenuous or fleeting? Why would you let the worth of your eternal soul be shaped by anything other than the God who determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name? Who covers the sky with clouds, who supplies the earth with rain, and makes the grass grow on the hills. You see, the psalmist is saying, boast in the Lord. Let your worth be shaped by the Lord, because nothing else is fitting. Nothing else is beautiful enough to carry the weight of your soul's worth. Your physical body... A lot of people worship their physical bodies. Friends, it, if it hasn't already, will let you down. Your intellect, it will let you down. You'll be the smartest person in the room, and at some point, you'll be disappointed. Your success at some point will run out. Your money, you can't take it with you when, you're di- when you die. The nursing home will probably take it before then. Your Or maybe it's your house or your car or some accumulation of your things, your stuff, or your reputation or status or popularity, or your kids. You know, so many people worship their kids. And I get it. I have three kids. I love my kids. I adore my kids. I am extremely proud of my kids. I, from time to time, boast about my kids, but they are not the ultimate boast in my life. Older generation, just help us out here for a minute. Will your kids disappoint you? Yes, they will. They will let you down. If you find your value in your kids, if you're trying to sort of be shaped by the worth of your children, you're, it's not going to go well. And furthermore, it's not fair to put the weight of your worth on the shoulders of your kids. They were not built to carry that weight. You see this all the time with dads and sons at the baseball field. It's like, my worth depends on the performance of my kid. My worth is shaped by how my, my son does at, at the plate, if he gets a hit or not. And, then, and these kids, they just wilt under this pressure because they were not built to carry the weight of your worth, Dad, Mom. Not how we were designed. You see, the psalmists are very honest about their tendencies to let their lives get the ultimate worth from the things of this world. See, we all are drawn towards finding ultimate worth in something other than God. Everyone has their spot, their, their weak point. And so, back to the question, why is worship important? Here's why. It reorders us back to the only fitting thing. To the only thing in all of creation beautiful enough to shape the worth of your soul. To the only one beautiful enough to shape the worth of the very center of who you are. You see, that's one of the things that should happen when we gather together on Sunday mornings here. We together reorder where we find our worth. Together we come to sing and share and learn and declare and say, God, I'm putting you back on top. You see, worship, corporate worship, is about 
reordering where we find our worth and saying, God, I'm putting you back on top. You may have slipped down a few notches this week. There may have been something else in my life that's been climbing the ladder, but I'm putting you back on top. You are the ultimate thing of value in my life. You are the one who shapes my value above all else. All right, question three. Where does worship begin? And I'll cut right to the chase on this one. Worship begins when we stop approaching God as just useful for us and we begin to see him as beautiful to us. You see, a lot of us find God useful, right? Um, you remember the, the golf guy who does the, does the commentary for... You know, anyone here watch golf on TV? I don't do it that much, but every now and then I'll watch golf and there's this commentator who's a British guy and every now and then a player will have a really good shot and he'll say, oh, useful. He's, he's British. Useful. That's a useful shot, right? Like, like that nine iron is just a useful club for him, right? It really helped him accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. And a lot of us treat God like that nine iron. We find him useful. We know that if we serve him or obey him or worship him, things in our lives will go better. He can help us out with stuff. If we walk in his ways, there'll be less heartache and pain and more blessing and peace. We'll go to heaven someday when we die. That's, that's useful, isn't it? That's a nice perk to have. And here's the truth. God is useful. He does provide a lot of perks. There's some usefulness to God. In fact, he wants to be useful. He asks us to pray to him and petition him for things that we need. He says, I'm available to you, right? God wants to be useful, but he does not want to be primarily useful or only useful to us. Real worship, pure worship, doesn't begin until we stop seeing God as just useful and we start to see him as beautiful. Worship begins when God doesn't become just the means to an end for us, but when we realize that God himself is that end. We don't enjoy God so that he can do these things for us. We just enjoy God because he's God, and he's enough, and he's beautiful. Let me help you think about this with a couple examples. First of all, it's summertime here in Oregon, right? It's, it's a great time to be in Oregon. It means a lot of us are outside. We're on trips. We're out in creation, enjoying the unmatched beauty of, of where we live. Last week, Amy and I got a chance to go off for a few nights, just the two of us. And we went camping down on the Mackenzie River. And uh, some of you have been down to the Mackenzie River. It's just one of the most beautiful rivers like in the entire world. And we camped along the Mackenzie. And then one day, we took an all-day hike into this place called Blue Pool. And I've talked about Blue Pool before. We went there several years ago, but it was so amazing we had to go back. Blue Pool, here's what Blue Pool is. The Mackenzie River hits, at one point along its journey, hits a lava tube and goes underground for several miles through a lava tube. And the place where it pops back up again to the surface is this place right here called Blue Pool. And because it's lava rock and the bed of this pool is lava rock, the, the water is just this amazing, like brilliantly blue, you can see it there, color. It's phenomenal. It's also freezing because it's been underground. So it's, it's the coldest water you've ever experienced. But what's amazing about this pool is not just that it's this brilliant color, it's that you have this pool that's just sitting there and all of a sudden a river is flowing out of it. So you're looking at it. Nothing's flowing in because the water's coming, you know, up from way deep underground where you can't see. And a river is flowing out. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's a phenomenal thing. And so Amy and I, we hiked into Blue Pool. Um, uh, I did some swimming for short, short periods of time. And, uh, and here's the question though. Did Amy and I go to Blue Pool 
to get something from it? Or did we just go to Blue Pool to enjoy it for itself? What do you think? No, actually, we didn't go there to get anything from it. We just went there to enjoy it for itself. We didn't go like with some idea that it had strict, you know, strange medicinal powers to, to cure us of, of diseases or we didn't go there to get cure, you know, healing from Blue Pool. We didn't go there to think with this idea that, man, if we just hiked to Blue Pool and sat along its banks, our marriage would be better. Like Blue Pool will help our marriage. No, we just went to Blue Pool to see bu- Blue Pool, to see its beauty, to bask in its beauty, to just enjoy it for itself. Blue pool was not useful to us it was beautiful to us let let me share you share a a relational example um, for you to help you grasp this let me just ask you to pretend like you have two relationships one of your relationships is a business associate associate that you don't like or enjoy all that much but your gifts your talents are complementary to one another and you work well together and so by working together you are able to make quite a bit of money that's relationship number 1 you and the unliked business associate the second relationship is one you have with a lover with a person who is in love with you and you are in love with that person now when you spend time with the business associate you're not going to do a lot of chit chat are you you're not going to talk about your problems. You're certainly not going to talk about life. You're going to say, okay, we have to meet. We need to meet. What are the goals of this meeting? What are our outcomes? What do we want to get out of our time together? And actually, you don't want to have a meeting unless you know you're going to get something done, unless it's going to be productive. The relationship is nothing. It is just a means to an end. The results of business. That's relationship one. That's the, that's the business associate. But with the lover... It's completely different, isn't it? Now, some of you are like, Pastor Dave, I've been married like 60 years. What's a lover? A lover is just someone you love and they love you. You enjoy them. You can't wait to spend time with them. Think back. Go back, people. Work with me here. I know it's weird when the pastor says the word lover. I thought about this a lot this week and I decided we're all adults and you can handle it. Okay. With a lover, you know, you don't say, well... You know, I would like to hang out, but what are the outcomes of the two hours we're about to spend? What are the takeaways? What's the usefulness of our time together? No, you don't do that. You don't say that. Why? Because the relationship is an end in itself. You don't need a reason to get together. You just want to be together to be together. You just want to be with her for her, not because she's going to do anything for you, not because there's going to be results from your time together. You see, you don't have the relationship in order to get something. The person is what you want to get. You see, that's the difference between approaching someone as as useful and approaching them as beautiful. Now, back to God. Which kind of relationship is God for you? Is God just a business associate? Is he just someone you relate to and connect with in order to get something from him? Is God just useful? Or is God like a lover? Is God someone you spend time with, not to get something from him, but just to be with him, just because he's beautiful? This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 27. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall shall seek, that I may dwell on the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And listen why. To behold the beauty of the Lord. 
See, not, not for extra perks, not for other things that God can give me, but just to have him alone because he's so beautiful. Just to enjoy God for God. Where does worship begin? Worship begins when we see God as beautiful. All right, last question. How is worship done? Here's how, verses 10 and 11. It says, His pleasure, that's God's pleasure, is not in the strength of the horse, nor is his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Now here's what this is about. In ancient times, there was nothing more secure feeling than to see your country's army. To see rank upon rank of men in armor, the muscles on their legs bulging, the sun on their spear tips and their swords and on their helmets. To see chariots and the horses, the strong legions of horses. You would look at that army, that army of men and that army of horses, and you would say... I feel hopeful. I feel secure. Why? Because those guys are protecting me. Because those guys are looking out for me. Because those guys stand in the way of anyone out there who wants to get in here. And so I have hope and I have security and I have this, this, this sense of satisfaction. But what does the psalmist say? What does this psalm say about that mindset? This psalm says... No, no, don't find your security, don't find your hope in the things of this world because they are fleeting. They're not as safe, they're not as stable, they're not as secure as you are tempted to believe that they are. Listen to verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. Remember that word, exiles. Verse 13. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. You see, many scholars believe this psalm was written during the time of Nehemiah. During the time when God's people returned to the promised land after a 70-year captivity in Babylon. You see, this psalm is written when the people are back. You see, now they're back in Jerusalem and the walls are rebuilt and the gates have bars on them again. But you'll notice, friends, that the psalm, that in the psalm, the people don't say, we feel safe and secure because of the gates. We feel safe and secure. We're hopeful because of the army and because of the walls. That's not what they say at all. Now they're back in Jerusalem. Now the walls are rebuilt. The army's been formed. Now the gates are back in place. But what the psalmist is saying here is that their praise, their worship, their singing does not come from a place of self-confidence, of confidence in the things they can see in this world. Why? Here's why. They've had walls and gates before. They've had success and joy and pleasure and prosperity and power and comfort before. And what happened? It was all wiped out. It went away just like that. The Babylonians came in and annihilated them. And so they know that even though as they look at the army, as they look at the gates and as they look at the walls, they're tempted to feel safe and secure because of these things they have in the world. They know how fleeting it is. And so their faith, their hope, their security is not in these things, but in the one who stands Behind those things. In the Lord of heaven and earth. They are living out the command To boast in Yahweh. To not boast in the army or the walls or the gates. 
You see, friends, how do we put our ultimate worth and hope and boast in God? How do we worship the way this psalmist is calling us to? We come to God in full awareness of our weakness, in full awareness of our need and our frailty, in full awareness of just how dependent on Him we are. You see, here's the challenge. Even when your life is going well, even when everything is lining up, even when the world is your oyster, even when we have our versions, our modern day, 21st century American version versions of horses and soldiers and walls and gates, even when we have our health and we have success and we have career advancement and we have money and we have status and we have relational lives that are full and rich and going smoothly, even when we have the earthly things that make us feel safe and secure and full of hope. Even then, this psalmist says, come to the throne with a healthy awareness that all of that can and will at some point go away. We come to God with an awareness of our desperate need for Him. You ever notice how desperation for God changes your worship? You ever experience this? You ever go through a season in life where some of those crucial sort of uh, things that prop you up have been taken away or they've been threatened, your health's been threatened, your marriage has been threatened, one of your kids has been threatened, your job's on the line. All of a sudden, in those moments when life is starting to crumble, you come into worship and man, you are aware of how much you need God. And your worship reflects it. I mean, those are the Sundays where you are dialed in, where the words are striking you, where the the melodies are striking your hearts, where there are tears and there are feelings and your hands go to here and you're saying, God, I need you. I'll do it different. I'll depend on you forever. I can't imagine not wanting you or seeking you. Those are the days where your worship just explodes out of your soul. Why? Because all of a sudden, you're aware of how frail you are. You're aware of how much you need Him. And then weeks go by and months go by and life self-corrects and things get stable again. And then you're walking in on Sundays and your hands are like here and you're kind of mumbling and you're like, I don't know, worship didn't really move me today. It was just okay, right? What's changed? Your heart's changed. Your awareness of your desperation has changed. And the psalmist here says, never forget how desperate you are for God. Never forget how dependent you are on Him. Never forget that your hope, whether you realize it or not, whether you feel it or not, is fully and completely in the Lord of heaven and earth's hands. That's why we gather, friends, to be reminded of that every week, because the world will tell you otherwise. And the place we remember that more than any other place is at that table. Because it's at that table where we stand again and look into the face of death. Look into the face of that thing that haunts and plagues every single one of us. The death rate still hovers right about 100% the last time I checked. Every single one of us will face that struggle. At some point, all the securities of this world will be pulled away and we must face our mortality. And at this table, friends, what we discover is that our hope, even in that moment, is alive. Because our God sent his son to die on the cross, to shed his blood, to die on our behalf, and then rise again to new life. See, the place where we can put our boast in the Lord most fully 
is at this table. It's the place where we say, God, I know that I'm tempted to boast in other things. God, I know that I'm, I'm tempted to derive my, my worth and value from some other things in this world, but nothing gives me value more than you. My boast, my ultimate boast is and will always be in you. It's this reordering moment. And so let me ask you today, what's competing with God for your worship today? What's holding you back from being desperate for him? grateful to him what's holding you back from remembering how good he is to you and that your ultimate hope and security can and will only be found in him friends this morning is a morning to say it again hallelujah hallelujah my highest and greatest hope is in Yahweh the personal God who longed to know me, who longed to know me and be connected to me so much that he sent his son to die on the cross that now I can praise I can boast in that God so come today friends spend some time asking God what needs to move down the list in your heart that gives you value what needs to come down a few notches so that God can move up when you're ready to confess that and declare it, come to the table, take the bread, take the cup, and then receive the elements on your own back at your seat. The worship team is going to lead us in some worship. Father, this morning we thank you. We declare that as a church we long for our highest and ultimate boast to be in you. Thanks for being our king. Thanks for being our hope. Thanks for being there when everything else in this world will fall away. We love you, Lord. We need you. We pray in Jesus' name.